But tonight is our final night in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're, I have it in my notes that we spent 12 weeks covering this. So just exactly three months, essentially. Uh, we've been having Wednesday nights for 13 weeks because Pastor Greg filled in for one week. And um, we're, we're drawing into, we're in the conclusion part of the sermon that Jesus taught. And uh, what's really interesting is he, he gives these, these three points of, of decision, really. Um, one, as we covered last week, which uh, two different ways, one that leads to life and one that leads to destruction. And then he talks about the false prophets uh, and how you can know who they are because of their, uh, the fruits that they're producing. We're to watch the lives of our teachers and see what it is that they're producing, whether they're truly um, doing what they're teaching or if they're um, doing other things. They're producing fruit that is not good. And we're going to come to our passage tonight. We're going to finish this up from 21 through 27. And... It's going to be the decision of who we're founding our lives upon or what we're founding our lives upon. And so as he continues his conclusion to his sermon, Jesus was telling us that we will know false prophets by their fruits. He will now teach us about the day he will judge men, showing us the basis on which men are judged and ending on an exhortation to examine the foundation on which we have built our lives. And as I was thinking about the message tonight, cleaning up after dinner and my other mess that I made, I don't know, it just kind of struck me that we spent 12 weeks listening to our Savior Jesus explain to us what's it, what it's like to be a part of this kingdom. And as a loving shepherd, giving us guidance on how to order our lives, giving us guidance on what it looks like to follow him. So that there is no surprise, but also he's giving us everything we need to do well. He's giving us warnings. He's giving us direction. He's bringing us to a place to, uh, of examination of ourselves as his disciples. And I just, I don't know, it just occurred to me just how good our God is. How good our Savior is. And that he would have what he taught captured by Matthew and placed in, in a solid three chapters of, of just his teaching alone. So we're hearing Jesus' words. And so 
as we continue tonight, keep that in mind. Because tonight's subject, Jesus ends kind of on a, on a, in a way that's very, it should cause us to be very introspective and self-examining. Uh, it doesn't end necessarily on some, you know, joyful note. But when we look at it in the context of all that he has been doing and all that he's been saying and the time that he took to teach these things to his disciples, to his followers, that's where we go, thank you, Lord. That's where we find joy that he, you know, is going to, what we have been studying, what we've been reading is what will will be held accountable by in the end. He gave us the answers to the test, in a sense, before we get to it. So let's read our passage tonight, starting in verse 21 of chapter 7 of Matthew. If you're there, say amen. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't We not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. So Jesus begins by teaching that there will be a day of separating those who he knows and those who he does not know. And he begins in a way that you're, it really strikes your attention, right? He goes, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we know that there is this time where Jesus himself is the authority on which man will encounter at a future date where they will, he will decide whether they enter in to the kingdom of heaven or not. Now, one thing that we'll want to note is no wonder, as we've already read through this, everyone was astonished. A scribe would have to be out of his mind to make a claim like this. So Jesus, from the get-go, is placing himself in a high position of judgment 
of being able to decide who enters the kingdom of heaven and who doesn't. So let's take note of that. This is why the people were astonished. But Jesus teaches that there will be a day of separating those he knows and those he does not know. This is the day of judgment. The final day of reckoning when God will settle all accounts, judging sin and rewarding faith. This will be a time where man will stand before Jesus and he will either be permitted into the kingdom or not. And this is not a new concept. Jesus would later on go to teach in two different places in Matthew. If you want to turn to Matthew 13 with me, Matthew 13, starting at verse 36. Jesus had just finished teaching a parable. And it says, then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares and of the field. So we have Jesus with his disciples. They ask him, explain to us your words. And so he does. Mark that our Savior takes the time to explain to his disciples what he means. Explain to us the parable of the tares and of the fields. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And so we see there's a dividing of the wheat from the tares. The tares, weeds that, that dis, dis, um, the mess up the crop of the wheat. And God says uh, he will separate them at this time. One to judgment and one to saving. And then he goes on in Matthew chapter 25 and says something very similar. But this time, instead of wheat and tares, we're seeing goats and sheep. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31, it says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so we see Jesus speaking of the sheep that he has separated from the goats. And permitting them to enter into the kingdom. 
So Jesus uses these illustrations to, to show of a coming judgment where all will stand before him. And he begins to clarify, see, as we look into this, we see some who are called, uh, who are calling Jesus Lord, but will not be permitted into the kingdom of heaven. That's back in our passage in Matthew 7. So the ones that he's pointing out, first off, are those who are calling him Lord, but are not permitted into the kingdom of heaven. And then in contrast, Jesus makes a statement that says that those who do the will of his Father in heaven, they will enter. So there are some who call Jesus Lord, who have heard his words and live by them. You might say that they are those that are already living as citizens of the kingdom here on earth. They're citizens of heaven, living according to the heavenly standards here on earth. According to God's will, they are operating their lives. They will be ones, they will be the ones who will be welcomed into heaven. They're already citizens. They're already acting in that way. And then we can draw out from our passage today that those who call Jesus Lord and are not permitted into the kingdom, there are those that are not doing the will of God because of what Jesus says. Luke's, uh, Luke's account of Jesus' teaching states it really clearly in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. It says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Really simple. It's an oxymoron. To call someone Lord, your authority, or as we'll see, the word Lord is actually uh, the, the word that the Greek Old Testament would use to translate Jehovah or Yahweh. So for the disciples to call Jesus Lord is to even claim that he is God. It's an, an oxymoron to call somebody Lord and then not be obedient. On the day of judgment, men will know full well that Jesus is God. They'll stand before him and they will see it. And they'll go, Lord, Lord. They'll call him God. They recognize. But the difference is between then and now is that while they were living, they didn't. What they did and what they confessed did not line up. While they were living, they didn't order their lives according to their confession. They didn't serve Jesus as Lord before the judgment. They took the judgment for them to recognize Him as Lord. So what we see is confession and reality need to line up. How we're living our lives and what we say have to line up. And the one who does the will of the Father and claims that Jesus is Lord is the one who enters the kingdom. That's the promise. It's the relationship with Jesus 
in the obedience to his word. Relationship from relationship flows obedience. Now, entrance into the kingdom is a theme of Jesus' teaching. And uh, really throughout Matthew's gospel, it goes into others. But just looking at Matthew's gospel and what what he records for us that Jesus taught, there's multiple places where Jesus is talking about entrance into the kingdom and what that looks like. We studied some of them earlier on in chapter 5. Jesus told us earlier that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. You guys remember that one? Part of the Beatitudes. And those who were persecuted for righteousness sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we see it's the way that somebody is uh, operating and what is happening to them because of what they're doing in light of their relationship with God. We heard Jesus say to, um, that to enter the kingdom, one's righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And someone of the day would have looked at the Pharisees, these perfect religious examples, and they would have thought, how am I going to make it? You know, these guys followed the book, you know, to the T on the appearance. But Jesus went on to describe the righteousness that exceeds that of religious activity. What the Pharisees had was religious activity, but they had no relationship with Jesus. If we turn to Philippians 3, this is Paul's testimony, one who was a Pharisee. And it's interesting that it's really similar to Jesus's teaching. Uh, Remember last week, Jesus said, beware of false prophets. Paul begins this passage here saying, beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision. So he's warning them of false teachers as well. But we'll go on to describe a righteousness that he is holding to. So if you're there, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. If you're there, say amen. Amen. All right. It says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. So Paul's going to start telling his testimony when he was a a Pharisee. Saying that he followed the Bible. He followed God's word. He did everything that he was actively doing. Even persecuting the church. He did for God. That would be the first thing that he said. But. He says, though I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And he's going to give this list of things that qualify him to be meeting the fleshly standard of the law. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was as Jew as anybody can be. Followed the law even when it wasn't his his 
under his control. His parents raised him according to that law. And then he says, as to the law of Pharisee, he was a Pharisee. He followed the law tightly. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Anybody who was calling anybody, uh, they were calling Jesus God or referring to following him as the Messiah. He was going after because Jesus was this false Messiah in his eyes. As to the righteousness, uh, as to the righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Wow. For him to be able to state, I am blameless according to the law means that he had followed it so detailed to the point that there was no way under examination, physical examination, that he would have found breaking any law that was written in God's word. So he could say that he was righteous according to the law. But look what he begins here. There's a there's a but in there and it contrasts everything that he could have found himself holding on to for his acceptance by God. He goes, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Whatever way he thought he could have been accepted by God by being obedient to the law, he said, I throw it all away because I want what Christ had come to deliver me from, my sin, and to receive what Christ had come to to give, and that was his righteousness. The righteousness that Christ had come to give by fulfilling the law. Remember at the beginning, he came to fulfill the law, not to get rid of it. So Jesus teaches later on in Matthew, I mean, this is, that is the righteousness, I'm sorry, I needed to go back. That is the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Paul, being an example of a Pharisee, followed the law diligently. But the righteousness that exceeds comes from Christ. So it's only by that righteousness that we receive from Christ that one can enter the kingdom. Jesus later teaches in Matthew, to enter the kingdom, one must become a child. He said in Matthew 18, 2, and he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's a whole nother thing that we can expound on. But the point is, is that Jesus called a child who had no or little importance in the in the day. They uh, they were humble in station. They, they had no authority. They, yet what their job was to submit to authority. And they, they were subject to authority and ones to be looked after, not looked up to. So you see 
when Jesus called people to come to him and become like children, it involves a conversion from self-importance to Christ's importance and to humbly walk with him. See, a child will come when called. A child, well, they should. They, uh, <laughs> a child is subject to the father. They're eager to learn. They're, they don't have necessarily, like a young child doesn't have the self-awareness yet. Where they're concerned about what other people think. If anything, there's a point or a stage in a child's life where they want to do everything for the sheer joy of making their parents happy. Look what I did. And that's all that matters. We also see Jesus, after speaking with the rich young man, saying that it's hard for the rich to enter heaven. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 19, 23, it says, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so we see this comparison. Jesus even says in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve mammon and you can't serve God. There's this draw sometimes when, when we are self-sufficient to think that we have it all together and we don't need God. And so he makes a statement that it's harder, that it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. But what I love is that he doesn't leave it there. He says, with God, nothing is impossible. But what we need to learn from this is that confession, calling Jesus Lord, needs to match action. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. In Matthew twelve fifty, Jesus says, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. There is that familial relationship with Jesus when one is being obedient to the Father, who is doing the will of the Father. So let's look at verses 22 and 23. Jesus begins to talk about the works that these, that Jesus is judging, were doing. It says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Many will tell Jesus of the things they did in his name in the day of judgment. Those standing before Jesus expected acceptance or entrance into the kingdom because of the works that they did in the Lord's name. Did we not? They were puzzled. I did these things. How come I'm not? What's happening? But what it shows us is that there was a self-conceit, uh, uh, relying upon their own works, but also a deception. They believed that what they were doing 
related to the relationship with the Lord. And Jesus goes on in verse 23, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Whoa. Jesus will declare to them that he does not know them. This word declare is the same word uh, used to speak of professing Christ before men in Matthew 10. So we see Jesus confessing before whoever is there at that point that he does not know them. Or I never knew you. Or was I never acquainted with you. There's a way to explain that word no. It's experimental knowledge. One uh, guy that I love uh, who does these word studies, um, Vincent, this is what it says on the Bible app. He states that the idea is that of confessing Christ out of a state of oneness with him. Actually, let me go back here. Matthew 10 Starting in verse 32, it says, Therefore, anyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And in talking about this verse, that whole confession, the, the declaring before others, he says the idea is that of confessing Christ out of a state of oneness with him. That's why I'm... When we confess Christ before men, it's, we're saying that we, have, we are one with him, right? Abide in me, and being in me, confess me, is what Jesus says. It implies identification of the confessor with the confessed, and thus takes confession out of the category of mere formal or verbal acknowledgement. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. The true confessor of Christ is one whose faith rests in him. That's the point that I wanted to get to. A true confessor of Christ is one whose faith rests in him. So look at our example tonight. What is the first thing that they rely upon? Their works. They were drawing back upon the things that they did in his name, not upon him. And Jesus tells them to depart. Jesus finds them guilty of practicing lawlessness. Now, lawlessness is transgressions or iniquity. We see in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4, it says, Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Okay, so these, these that are standing before Jesus who are saying that they've done these great works to him in his name, Jesus says, he doesn't deny that they did the good works, but he says, but you were practicing lawlessness. And John clarifies later with us that, or for us, that practicing sin is practicing lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. So we see that there was a pattern of sin within those standing before Jesus. 
that even though they were doing these works, there was something going on behind. Now, remember back when we were talking about the laws that God was, or that Jesus was addressing? He was bringing up these laws thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. He was addressing those laws, but what did Jesus do? He took those laws and he drove them straight to the heart. He says that when you murder, it's not just done physically in a physical act. It begins in the heart. It begins with anger towards your brother. So Jesus can look beyond the works. I could stand up here and say I've never murdered a person physically. But I am guilty as all men for being angry with somebody and therefore I have murdered. But who can judge that? Jesus. He looks straight to the heart. So it's not a crazy thing to think that somebody could be out doing these great works and yet a sinner, one practicing lawlessness. And Jesus would be able to call it out and say, you know what? You weren't in me. Look at let's continue on in first John. It's in first John three chapter or chapter three, starting in verse four. It says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him nor or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices, there's that term practices, righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin. Because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. West, uh, a Bible translator, translates the word practices as habitually. Those who are habitually sinning, practicing lawlessness, or habitually practicing, or who are habitual about their righteousness is righteous. The Young's literal translation says, doth do. Nice old English there. Doth do. They, they do it. Those that are practicing, they're doing sin, are doing lawlessness. Or they are doing righteousness because they're righteous. We begin to get a clearer picture of the two things of two things. One, Jesus is righteous is a righteous judge, able to judge from perfect knowledge of man's heart. 
He is able to discern acts from intent. And then two, it's possible to call Jesus Lord, do spiritual things, but not know him. To be a hypocrite, one saying one thing and living another. And this is what Jesus has been warning the whole time. He's been warning about those that are living in that lifestyle. Don't follow them. Follow me. Follow what I'm teaching. Follow the will of the Father. The people Jesus is speaking to did many great things, but they did not know him. They had no true relationship with him or else he'd know them. This is different, too, than somebody who claims to be a Christian. This is not teaching. Let me put it, uh, phrase it this way. This is not teaching that one can lose salvation, per se. These aren't people that started off following Jesus and then got off base, in the sense. But this is describing those who believed that what they were doing would make them acceptable by God, and then when they get to the end, realize I did, they had no relationship with him. They used his name, but they didn't know him. Now, the idea or the thought came to mind, you know, every now and then I'll have a, a person I know go, hey, I put you down as a reference. You know, I put you down as a reference. Or this has happened in the past, even working at Trader Joe's, like, hey, I sent my son or daughter in, or um, my cousin, I sent my cousin in to go and apply there. Put your name down as a reference. If my manager came up to me and go, hey, what do you know about this person? I'll go, who? What? I don't know who that person is. I can't, I can't vouch a single thing for them. They could be the best worker in the world. They could be the worst worker in the world. But I have no grounds in which to speak from because I don't know them. And it's almost the same thing here. I, I don't want to make a direct illustration, but that was the thing that came to mind. I don't, Jesus doesn't know them. You've done some great things. Yeah, awesome. But you didn't know me. Jesus is the judge. And he is the one that they give an account to. And then Jesus goes straight into this. This next part. He says in verse 24. Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine. Okay. Who's listening. And acts upon them. Who's going to take what they heard and they do. They may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Here's the comparison. Everyone who hears these words of mine. So they're both hearing and this one does not act on them, there's not a doing, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. This next section sheds light on what 
was happening with those who were not granted access to the kingdom of heaven. They were doing great works in the name of God, but were not listening to his words in order to do them. And we can get a fuller picture, and I didn't elaborate on this, but uh, think about Jesus' words earlier on in the sermon when they were saying, you know, when you do your charitable deeds, don't do them to be seen by men. Do them unto the Father who sees in secret. That's part of the relationship. It doesn't matter what people think. What am I doing for him? What am I doing in response to my relationship with him? Am I seeking to be rewarded by men? Or am I seeking to be rewarded by the Father? And so we have this, these people that were doing great works in the name of God. But they were doing it for something other than him. And Jesus illustrates the difference between hearing and doing and hearing and not doing. The one who hears and does is wise. And the one who hears and does not do is foolish. You see, wisdom builds on what is firm or rocky, substantial. Foolishness considers not the foundation. You see, what these illustrations draw a difference between building deliberately and building haphazardly. Both are building. Both will weather a storm. But one thought about the foundation. If you look at Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 46, we're, this is Luke's account of Jesus' Jesus's teaching here. It says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. Who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred and the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built from the get go, taken time, laid a proper foundation. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground without any foundation. So here, the sand is represented by no foundation. And the same torrent burst against the house, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So we see that the wise builder dug and went deep to lay the foundation. Both build. Both encounter storms. And all these ands in our, back in our Matthew passage, when he says, and the rains fell and the floods came, they're, they're uh, emphasized in the Greek to illustrate that they were both going through these same situations. But what's interesting is in Matthew's those two, there's two different words used to describe the force with which the winds slammed against the house. 
And the wise man's house stood up against a violent attack and and beating of the wind. And the idea is that the home was so founded that it was withstood attack by wind. It was founded. It's a past tense word. It had been built upon the rock and it stood. This was the wise man took inventory and planned ahead, dug deep. And the foolish house, foolish man's house, it was taken out by a wind. And the word illustrates stumbled upon. It didn't even take much force to take that house out. So, as I started our message tonight, just thinking about how good Jesus is, that he would pull his disciples aside and begin to teach them. Actually, it tells us that he went and sat down and his disciples surrounded him and he began to teach them. That Jesus spent that time to deliver important messages about the kingdom, what it looks like to live according to that kingdom, and follow him as Messiah, and do the will of the Father, which is what Jesus came to do. That he's giving them instruction almost on how to build. And how seriously somebody took Jesus' words was illustrated by the laying of the foundation. Digging deep and putting down that foundation. You see, everyone in the world will encounter some storm of life. Everyone will encounter judgment before God. But what matters is how well we are building now. How are we building? Are we slowing down to listen to God's word, to apply it to our lives? Or are we going off of just showing up on a Sunday, getting that hour, and then living the rest of the week however we wish? Are we walking daily in communion with Christ, taking what he is teaching us, and applying it to our lives. Digging down deep and and making it part of who we are. I see such grace and such love that Jesus would spend so much time to speak to his disciples and anyone who would hear these words. Not only these words, but... We have our, the Bible that he's given us to declare everything we need to know about God, about the Father, about what Jesus had come to do and where it all is heading. What we just finished studying on Sundays as we've gone through Revelation, that there is a, a new heaven and a new earth where the whole of all the nations will be represented before God's throne, worshiping him. How are we building? 
Jesus, it says, when he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And this word amazed is really, it, it, it has a word picture to it. It it's, means they were astonished, but they were literally struck out of their senses. They were awestruck. Never heard anybody teach like that before. Because he was teaching with authority. He was teaching as one who will judge every single person who hears these words. And how they respond to them. And think, this is the the thing. Jesus was teaching with authority, but he was teaching. It was available for anybody who will take time and listen and feed upon it and make it their own so that they have relationship with him, walking with him. And his authority was expressed with a view of he himself judging. You see, it says that he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. The teachers of religious laws often cited traditions or quoted authorities to support their arguments and interpretations. But Jesus spoke with new authority, his own. He did not need to quote anyone because he was the original word. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So... I encourage all of you. I've been periodically doing this, if not every week. Rereading through the whole Sermon on the Mount. It gets quicker as you read it. but Or as you make that a habit. But I was, leading up to even tonight, I was just so overwhelmed by his, his words. One, the grace that he has shown me in my life. Two, how much more depth he is calling me into as his follower. And just wanting to reach the end to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. That's what all of us want to hear, right? We want to hear that. And thank God it's not based upon our own righteousness, as Paul was saying, but by what Jesus has done. It starts first and foremost with a relationship with him. Not the works. But the works, those pour out of the relationship. I can't help but do these things because of my relationship with him. I can't help but give myself for his use for his glory and so I think that's what Jesus is calling his disciples into he's warning them he's saying important things that they needed to hear and I would encourage us to reread this now that we've gone through it all together over these 12 weeks just sit down reread it see what stands out to you Maybe there was something that the Lord had spoken to you a while back and he wants to refresh. Maybe there's something new he wants to draw out as now that we have gone through the whole thing together. But the biggest thing 
as we take all that we've learned from Jesus, how are we building? Are we building as one who is hearing the word and doing? Or are we building as one who hears the word and proceeds haphazardly? One leads to destruction and one leads to life. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you for just your, your faithfulness to teach us as your disciples. Lord, I, am, I stand in awe of you as you were speaking all of these things to your disciples, Lord, and, and Matthew recording them for us so that we as your disciples too can hear what you taught. Lord, that we can hear, Lord, what you were saying, what you were teaching your disciples so that we might be instructed too. Lord, I pray that we would continue to have those ears to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, and not just to hear it, but to to do it, Lord. Lord, that faith is activating action in us. It's an act of faith. Lord, and as I prayed earlier, that you would lead us into those things that you have called us to do. Lord, as we walk with you, as we abide in you, Lord, that we would produce those fruits, Lord, that bring you glory. Lord, as we interact with the world, as we are those that proclaim the good news that you came and you died and you rose again. That we might have new life an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So Lord, we we give thanks, Lord, for your word and our time in the Sermon on the Mount. We pray, Lord, that you would Continue to lead us, Lord. I don't know where Pastor Greg is going next week, but Lord, I just pray that you would um, continue to stir our hearts for you. What, uh, what you, your will is in this world, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.